This is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. I'm Biddy Martin, president of Amherst College. In this episode, Professor Bill Pritchard, class of 1953, reflects on change as an essential part of growth. A willingness to change is the mark of a liberally educated person. It is also the foundation of a healthy liberal arts institution. Here's Bill. This is William Pritchard, and I'm sitting in my kitchen uh, on a Friday afternoon and very nervously uh, uh, beginning this this, uh, series of reflections. And I'm told by the uh, authorities that I should introduce myself. Well, I've already done that. I could call myself the Henry Clay Folger Professor of English Emeritus at Amherst College. But the great opportunity to brag about my accomplishments, I'm going to try to avoid that. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst Class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. Bill Pritchard started as a 16-year-old at Amherst in 1949 and went on to graduate with a B.A. in philosophy in 1953, returning as an English professor in 1958. Since then, he's been a fellow of both the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Guggenheim Foundation. He's the author of many books, including Frost, A Literary Life Reconsidered, and English Papers, A Teaching Life. Pritchard has also written for the Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, and Times Literary Supplement. He is a fixture in our community. I grew up in a town, although it called itself a city, Johnson City, New York, on the Pennsylvania border between two other cities, Binghamton and Endicott, and we were known then as the Triple Cities. I want you to meet a city and its people. It's a city that could be yours with people such as you. The city is Binghamton, New York, population 85,000, located where the Susquehanna and the Shenango rivers meet to form what the people of the city call the Valley of Opportunity. And Johnson City was the smallest and of course the one dearest to my heart. Johnson City was a company town, was a factory town. Uh, The main industry was shoemaking and many, many of my high school classmates would go from high school into the factories. Very few of them, almost none of them, Uh, would attend college. I grew up feeling that I was privileged insofar as my father was a professional man, a lawyer, and my mother, and this is even more important, my mother was a music teacher in the public schools of Johnson City. I felt snobbily or truly that I was a little different, a little special. My father looked with suspicion on anything like a private school, and I think not just because Uh, It would cost money, but that as a member of the school board, as he was himself as president for a while, he believed in the rightness of education in the Johnson City public schools and at Johnson City High School. I owe whatever my start in poetry was to one of those teachers in eighth grade, Miss Hotchkiss, who introduced many of my classmates reluctantly 
to the American classic poets. When it came time to think about graduation and to think about higher education, my father had very definite ideas. He had been to Hamilton College and to Harvard Law School, where he'd uh, had a very unpleasant time, although he recovered from it. At any rate, he didn't want me to go to Harvard, and he thought maybe that Hamilton was a little too, uh, a little too easy somehow. As a high school student, any help I got in uh, choosing a, a place to go to college was minimal. Uh, that didn't bother me because I didn't think I need, needed guidance or, or counseling. I got good grades. Uh, surely any college would be pleased to, to have me. And for some reason, Princeton University became the favorite place. It was bucolic, it was in the country. It felt a little bit more like a smaller school than did Harvard or Yale. And for no reasons better than that, it was decided, I, I decided that I wanted to go to Princeton University. I applied knowing that I would be accepted. After all, I had this fine record. I was gonna turn out to be a, a class valedictorian. How could they not want me? Well, imagine my surprise and imagine, if you will, the consternation when it turned out that, and I think it was as late as the beginning of June, a terse letter was received from the authorities at Princeton University saying that I was not admitted. Well, that was a terrible time. My mother wept, my father wept, I'm sure I wept. Uh, and after we wept and talked about the unjustness of what Princeton had done, we looked around to see what could be done to, to save this situation. The summer previously, on a trip through New England, we had spent one night, a very hot Saturday night, at Amherst College, which was locked up. We didn't talk to anybody associated with the college, but got a fairly a pleasant impression of this campus and these buildings and what they looked like. Change in the weather, there's a change in the sea. So from now on there'll be a change in me, my walk So why not try Amherst? Why not put my sad case uh, to their sympathies? and? What my father did, and I admire him for this, was write a letter to the Dean of Admissions. Bill Wilson, Dean Wilson, wrote back a very brief but friendly letter saying, please send along Bill's college board uh, statistics, and if they're okay, he's in. Come and sing all you loyal Amherstmen, come and give a rousing cheer. With that, Professor Pritchard's life in Amherst began. Now, as you might expect, Amherst in 1950 was a much different place. Here, Professor Pritchard quotes renowned French-American philosopher and educator Jacques Barzin, describing the experience of a first year in the 1940s and 1950s. He or she was called Mr. or Miss in class. 
without irony. The whole intellectual landscape was new. Here were grave faculty members, friendly but not chummy, devoting a good many hours a week to teaching certain definite matters of agreed importance and also doing that mysterious thing, quote, research. It seemed to give their words the authority they claimed and did not hesitate to exercise. And then here, here's the sentence that I like best. This enchanting new atmosphere found its counterpart in the work to be done. I'm particularly fixed on that phrase, this enchanting new atmosphere, because I think that's what uh, Amherst did to me, the, the, the newness of Amherst's atmosphere was enchanted. But there was no absolutely no question that what we were engaged in here under this curriculum was was a wonderful educational uh, idea and that we had to live up to it and living up to it meant practically uh, that you go to all your classes there are no cuts allowed the first semester freshman year uh, your course met three or four times a week you were there three or four times and if you weren't you got in trouble. In the second semester, freshman year, things loosened up a bit. If your class met three times a week, you were allowed three cuts over the course of the semester. Uh, there was no reading period as there, as there was uh, fam most famously at Harvard. No, you had to, you had to be with it week, week by week, day by day. No cuts, no reading period. Professors in the Amherst Catalog 1949 were described as uh, professors doing research, etc., getting books published. But uh, along with books getting published and research getting done, the professors, says the College Catalog, are at the same time an understanding, interested, friendly group of men to whom a student may turn for academic or personal guidance. And that the education which Amherst proposed purpose to offer its students was a sound, purposeful education for life. I think that's pretty much a, a good description of the way things were. The catalog, again, that antique instrument that I have grown so fond of that's in my office, had nothing to say about any sort of moral human behavior there was not one word that had anything to do with behavior. In fact, it wasn't until a few years later when the following sentence was added. Conduct befitting a gentleman is expected at all times of students at Amherst College. It is assumed that undergraduates will understand what constitutes gentlemanly conduct without specific regulations forbidding particular actions. Now we say, well, what does that mean? What is a gentleman, etc.? And that, in a, in a nutshell, I think describes uh, the atmosphere that uh, I came into and that, that, that Amherst College began to represent for me. It is assumed you know what gentlemanly behavior is or you wouldn't be here, and either you live up to it or you, or you don't. If you're going to be caught as one of my classmates was as a senior in some girl's room in Holyoke, uh, that's not gentlemanly conduct. And, and you know that, uh, uh, that you, you must not do that, even though I don't, we don't need to have a rule saying keep out of girls' bedrooms at, uh, at Holyoke College. Altogether, I estimate that we spent about 
20 hours a week in classroom. It kept us busy, kept us out of, out of mischief, as we said. And in fact, it was, it was kind of hard to, to find very much mischief to engage in. What could you do? You, you couldn't run around in your car because you weren't allowed to have a car. Freshmen did not have a car. I think a couple, a uh, couple of boys did illegally. There's Smith and Holyoke over there, but that would involve getting a date. How do you go about doing that? You need you need to look at one of those Facebooks and decide that girl twenty or or girl nineteen would be your sweetheart, and then you had to pursue things by calling up uh, and asking Amanda if she might like to come over on the weekend, Saturday night, to go to a movie. Uh, what they were called then was flicks. Would you like to go to the flicks? And that would involve perhaps having supper at Valentine Hall. Uh, and Amanda would, of course, have to be back at Smith or Holyoke by 11 o'clock. And the conditions under which Amanda uh, would be entertained uh, were pretty stringent, pretty stringent ones. For this 16-year-old freshman, uh, the prospect of, of, of uh, that kind of social life was a daunting one, and I solved it by not engaging in it. Oh, just a look at that crowd. Hey, pop, call the cop, all the traffic will stop. Dating aside, Amherst did have a thriving social scene on its own campus. In the early 1950s, fraternities were a central element of Amherst's social world. Most of the undergraduates joined a fraternity, the famous fracas that Phi Kappa Psi got into with their national organization when they pledged the first black student, Thomas Gibbs, in 1951, uh, was important enough to get written up in the, in the Reader's Digest. Uh, Tom Gibbs, who became a fraternity fraternity brother of mine. The story of Thomas Gibbs, class of 1951 and Phi Kappa Psi, made national headlines. Here, in a 2010 interview, the late Reverend Gibbs talks about his experience pledging a fraternity at Amherst. I didn't realize, of course, at the time that uh, I was very limited in what I could do or what I should do, because certain things were expected, which my colleagues, when I say colleagues, I mean the African Americans, didn't tell me until after I'd gotten an invitation to join a fraternity, and then they told me what I should have done when the invitation was extended. But, as I say, I was a bit unknowing, and uh, I just plunged into everything Amherst had to offer at the time. A New York Times article from November 1948 reported that the National Fraternity suspended the Amherst chapter, which then went independent, and initiated Gibbs as a brother. During his second year at Amherst, Professor Pritchard took English 21, which introduced him to the work of poet Robert Frost, then an active member of the Amherst community. Frost uh, had an arrangement with Amherst where he spent two weeks in the fall and a week in the spring uh, in residence at the college. He lived at the inn, and students were invited to go down and see him if they Maybe they had a poem or some piece of writing they could show him. Or he went to uh, he went to tea at the president's or at some fraternity house, and select numbers of students were invited to meet him. The brothers of Phi Alpha Psi. We invited Frost over for an evening. This was a very usual thing to do. The poet would 
would come over and sit down and the brothers, not the whole house, but those interested, maybe 30 or so, uh, would dress up a little bit, put a necktie on and put on a sport jacket. And the poet would then read and talk about his poems as Frost did and loved to do and, and was masterly at. And then there'd be, a, of course, a short time for a question period, etc. Well, the night Frost visited Phi Psi, I had recently spoken with a good friend of mine who had taken the, the English course, I guess, when, when, uh, when we read Frost, it was the year before, and a particular poem of, of his came up for discussion in my friend friend's class. It was a, was a poem called Bereft, not very well known, but it's about being lonely and, and being scared, and, and, and it ends up, um, word I was in my house alone, somehow must have gotten abroad. Word I was in my life alone, word I had no one left but God. So when the question period came up, the night frost visited Phi Psi, I raised my hand and said something like, Dear Mr. Mr. Frost, uh, in one of your poems, one of your poems ends with the assertion that word I was in my life alone, word I had no one left but God. And I, mimicking my friend's teacher, said, well, how much is that anyway? And Frost began to toy with me. All I can remember was something like, now, now, we poets write the poem and then we draw a line and we don't step over that line. I was inviting him to step over that line. He was damned if he was going to do it. Uh, so I never got an answer to how much, how much that was when you, when, when you have nothing left but God. But I remember that, that later on, uh, a fraternity brother uh, who, who had been at the occasion sort of said to me reprovingly, you're, you're not supposed to ask him about his poetry. <laughs> What, what would you ask him about? Well, Frost loved baseball. So ask about baseball. So always some plunk would uh, say, Mr. Frost, you know, and then ask him um, a, a probably boring question about uh, Major League Baseball. The opportunity to interact with Robert Frost was just one of the connections afforded to Professor Pritchard while at Amherst. I was singularly fortunate in being put in a class uh, run by a classicist. John Andrew Moore, I, I know the word great teacher gets thrown around too much, but John Andrew Moore was a great teacher. Uh, he didn't teach here for all that, that long, from the beginning just after the Second World War, and I think he died as, as early as 19, 1972. But he made an impact like, uh, like nobody else. Uh, he would bound into class, which was held at the top of Williston Hall on a very cold morning in November and throw up the windows uh, and then kind of vault up on the desk with one of his legs under him and begin the colloquy, the colloquy which consisted in question and question and sometimes answer. But to be introduced as I was, Greek drama, what the hell is that? I'd never won, never heard of one, never read one. So Moore was able to introduce us in, in the most agreeable and surprising way. What uh, was most surprising about it, I think, 
comes to light when I remember the comment uh, of, a, of, a, of a classmate. He didn't like more, and he didn't like more because uh, more didn't give any answers. And he said, this fellow said to me after class, he keeps asking these questions and he never gives us any answers. Moore did not give any answers and you never knew quite where you were at the end of uh, a unit, um, except that you, you'd been through something rather, rather special and, and, and rather dizzying. At the end of the term, I remember going into the dean and uh, asking him specially if I could remain in Professor Moore's section for the second term. Being asked again and again questions to which there weren't any answers, but which involved to keep you alive, uh, some necessary agility on your part, so that you got, I got to be a little less uh, pious, a little less locked in. And we, we got trained to the extent where I can, I can remember a, a date, a girl from Holyoke or Smith uh, saying in response to me and a good friend of mine, maybe we're, we were double dating or something, all you Amherst guys talk alike. And we, we were very pleased with that. Um, and that, that meant, of course, that we developed our little vocabulary, our little in-jokes, and, and that we were... Uh, and that we were pleased to be to be in on something, especially if you thought, uh, as the course progressed, that you were catching catching on. Here, Professor Pritchard reads from his book English Papers, where he describes exactly what about the post World War II years made his experience in Amherst such an enchanting one. For twenty years, there had existed a virtually unanimous consensus about the best way to educate young people about what they needed to know and the order in which they needed to know it. I doubt that the moment could have existed or been as prolonged as it was if it had not followed directly upon World War II with its legacy of returning veterans intent upon making up uh, for what they'd lost in the previous four years. Nor could it have existed without a homogeneous climate of white male idealism and privilege. To adapt Matthew Arnold's phrase, the power of the man, the men actually, and the moment had come together to produce not a great creative epoch of literature, Matthew Arnold's phrase, but something as close, and I put this in quotes in my my book, something as close to a great college as there was likely to be. It was an education that the undergraduates of those years, most of them anyway, never got over, as testified to their returning to the campus at their various reunions, still ready to hold discussions and symposia about their most influential courses, still assuming that something unique or at least memorably distinctive had been theirs. Were they mainly deluded, the victims of sentimental memories of male bonding in the classroom and on the playing fields? Should an Amherst education be compared to a long-term disease from which the infected never quite recovered? I had a profound moment in which I was studying up in a room on the third floor of Converse in the spring of my senior year and trying to read George Santayana. 
and uh, looking out the window, beautiful night. Suddenly I decided I would go up and stand in the back or the front of the chapel night. I think I even lay down, or at least I sat down. And vows were made for me at that moment. And I decided that uh, there was nothing in the world that I'd rather do than come back and teach at Amherst. Over the next five years after graduating from Amherst, Professor Pritchard studied philosophy at Columbia and then English at Harvard. As it turned out, he wouldn't be away from Amherst for long. I, th I think back to my return to the college, and it came after I was ensconced with my spouse, married in 1957. One evening there came a phone call for me uh, from Amherst, uh, from the chairman of the English department, who at that time happened to, to be Benjamin DeMott. DeMott called and said, Bill, what would you think uh, of coming down here and having an interview, uh, talking to the president and members of uh, the English department to see whether, in fact, uh, you might like to come and, and be of our group and teach with us? Well, I was absolutely floored, stunned. How could what I'd been thinking about, dreaming about, fantasizing about, knowing that this could never happen, too good to be true, it looked as if, by God, it was going to happen. The most memorable, the only memorable piece of advice I got was from Theodore Baird. We had a short talk, and, and the, only, the only thing he said to me that I can remember, the only piece of advice was, speak up. And I think I tried to speak up when I sat across the table from President Charles Woolsey Cole at the top of the chapel and made a case for myself. Uh, it was kind of embarrassing. DeMott, as chairman, also sat in on this interview, did not say a word, and it seems to me almost sort of put his head down on the desk in, in boredom uh, as, I, as, I, as I tried to answer Cole's questions. I did not screw up, and it was not very long, I think a, less than a week, <clears throat> that I heard that uh, I had been approved and uh, that I would become uh, a member of the uh, uh, English department. And in the fall of 1958, we moved to Amherst. We took rooms at uh, the faculty apartments and newly built in Goodnow House, $45, $55 a month. I remember they threw in a, a free snow shovel so that you could, uh, you know, keep your, keep your sidewalks clean. I taught a little bit at Harvard, not with great success, but here I was asked to teach three courses a term. I can still, I think, register the weariness that I used to feel on Saturday morning at noon when uh, 120 papers over the course of the week were behind me. Well, all ways of becoming a man, and uh, this certainly was not the most uh, unpleasant one, but it was a very vivid one. After taking the job in 1958, Professor Pritchard and the entire Amherst community were thrust into the momentous decades of the 1960s and 1970s. In early 1970, college students across the country organized protests, including walkouts, against the Vietnam War. On May 4, 1970, 
four Kent State student protesters were killed by the Ohio National Guard. The most serious disruption ever to take place in the college took place in the spring of 1970. 1970 was the year of, of, of the killings at Kent State and at Jackson State in the spring just before our semester ended. And the decision to uh, strike was a very momentous one. It can go out on strike, uh, the college did, for about maybe a week and a half or two weeks since classes were about to end anyway. Ten years or so, five years after uh, the campus strike in 1970, uh, came finally to many people's feelings, co-education, a move that had been first resisted by the trustees, uh, and even though President Bill Ward was in favor of it. Uh, but eventually, in 1974 or 75, it got through, and the first female male class was assembled in 1976. I have, uh, I think, perhaps somewhat sentimental feelings, sentimental memories of the early years of co-education. It was, everybody said it would be very different. And many, and many people said, your classes will never be the same, etc. That, I can say, didn't happen to me. My classes were not all that much different. Some people look upon the years of uh, the late 60s, in which there was perhaps the most political activism that was ever seen on the Amherst campus. Uh, some people uh, think of the students during that time as very much as, as, as more lively, as more engaged, as more interesting to teach than they had known previously. Uh, I think I would say that about the early years of co-education, though I didn't know it at the time. Those classes, those people, as I look back upon them now, seem, seem to me to have, have, have taken on uh, uh, some special aura. And again, this may be overvaluing. This may be sentimentality, uh, but I don't think it, it is. I think it was a, a special time that can never, will never be duplicated again. I, I think now of a poem that's often in my mind as I get older uh, by the wonderful poet Randall Jarrell. Uh, it's, it's a short poem about looking back on a time when things seemed as if they could improve quite a bit. And uh, the last line, two lines of the poem are, and yet after so long one thinks, in those days everything was better. In those days, after so long, one thinks. And yet after so long one thinks, in those days everything was better. And I think that's uh, the temptation that uh, an aging person looking back upon a career of uh, 60 years of, of teaching at the college, uh, he's got he's to watch himself and probably correct it to, in those days, everything was different. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. A production of Amherst College in association with Cadence 13, 
narrated by me, Jeffrey Wright. Executive produced by Biddy Martin, Ian Mont, and Rebecca Kennedy. Produced by Catherine Duke, Bette Schumacher, and Sandy Janelius. Written, directed, edited, and mastered by Ian Mont. Technical and equipment support by Sean Cherry. Creative consultation by Catherine Duke, Carly Nardowitz, Connolly Stokes-Buckles, and Molly Whalen. Music from Source Audio and Extreme Music. Archival support from Michael Kelly. Mm-hmm.